so yeah, I just wanted to give a big welcome from Yoke Recruitment to everyone who's joined today and yeah, a big thank you for joining. Um, so today's topic for HR Insights came about via the Yoke Pathway Project, um, which is something I spoke about last time. Um, so the Pathway Project is um, where Yoke Recruitment have been focused on using our recruitment knowledge and network to help shape more accessible employment pathways for everyone. Um, so a part of this project, we've been working a lot with Leonard Cheshire, um, help share knowledge to break down the barriers those with disabilities face when applying for work. Um, so I'm very thrilled um, to welcome and intro Kirstine Allison, who's speaking today. Kirstine is uh, speaking first. Um, Kirstine is a training and consultancy advisor at Leonard Cheshire, who we've been working with quite a lot in the last couple of months. Um, she's previously worked in uh, equality and diversity roles for organisations such as Skills Development Scotland and the DWP. Uh, she's volunteered with disability organisations and she's also provided support to organisations such as like, the Scottish and UK governments. Um, so she's got loads of experience, um, loads of knowledge to share, which we're very excited to hear about. So yeah, from all of Kirstie's experience, um, she's got loads of professional experience and a lot of lived in experience as well. So we're really excited to hear from her. Um, so after Kirstie, um, we've got Anna Benton-Jones coming up um, and she'll be discussing long COVID as disability and the legislation to be aware of. So uh, without further ado, I will hand over to Kirsty from Leonard Cheshire and she will start taking you through her slides. Thank you very much. So hi everybody and thank you for the introduction. Um, my name, as James says, is Christine Allison and I am a training and consultancy advisor at Leonard Cheshire. Prior to working in Leonard Cheshire, I have previously worked in HR, so I do have experience of both sides of the table first as, as a disabled person myself and also as someone who worked in HR and also equality for over 25 years now, so a long time. I am hearing impaired and visually impaired, so as James said, if you could please put yourself on mute if you're not talking and speak one at a time when you are talking. Please avoid any visual backgrounds, including blood backgrounds, because these interfere with my visual impairment software. I'm using a communication support worker to help me follow the conversation. She's off screen, but again, it helps her to follow the conversation if we all speak one at a time. So the first 40, 45 minutes is me talking about um, barrier-free recruitment. I'll be sharing some statistics, talking about the barriers that disabled people face, how you can spot the signs that people are facing a barrier and how those barriers can be removed. If there's anything that I don't cover today, you can always get in touch with me for any further um, training or consultancy support. And I'll talk a bit more about how we can help with that in my presentation. So, moving on. So, you might have heard of Leonard Cheshire before, but I'm going to talk a bit more about what we do because some people know about part of our work, but not all of it. So, Leonard Cheshire, we are not just a national charity, we are also a global charity. So, we work globally to help individuals to live, learn and work independently, whatever their ability. We are led by disabled people. So what that means is we believe very much in the nothing about us without us concept. So we do ask them how we are performing and what we can do better. We are at the heart of community. So we have our care home services. We have our employment services where we offer um, support for disabled graduates to get internships 
and we offer training and consultancy to employers to help them to recruit inclusively. We have education services where we help um, young people around the world to access equal edu education. We've got over 5,000 staff, over 4,000 volunteers, and last year alone we supported over 70,000 disabled people around the world. I work in the training and consultancy team at Lenox and what we do is we deliver training, um, as the name suggests, on inclusive recruitment, on supportive management, inclusive customer service, and we also help you to develop policies and processes that um, can help you to make your recruitment more accessible. So to give you some, some context to the conversation today, I wanted to highlight some key statistics around disability and recruitment. So there is a lot of untapped talent that is not being reached by recruiters. Leather Shetters research shows that 20% of the UK population has a disability or a long-term condition. Lots of employers lack understanding when it comes to disability and when it comes to hiring and supporting disabled staff. That figure of 22% is only those who have chosen to share. The actual figure could be a lot higher. And we'll come back to that figure later on in the presentation. You might be more likely to acquire a condition as you get older than you are to be born with one. And what that means for you as recruiters, as employers, as colleagues, is that you could very likely be working with someone who is disabled, but might not have shared. We also need to remember that not every condition is visible. We all know the impact of the pandemic on operations, but also on recruitment. Some organisations say it's harder to recruit than before, but they might not realise that there's a large pool of untapped talent out there that are not being reached. In 2018, 26% of businesses said they had never interviewed a disabled candidate. That's quite a high figure. Is it true? Remember what I just said about not every disabled person identifies as disabled and also not every disability is a visible one. So that figure is probably not true. Lenna Shetter's 2021 research found that disabled people are less likely to be employed than non-disabled people. That's a gap of 28% and a pay gap of 15% which equates to £3,000 less a year that they're earning. 69% of employers cited the cost of adjustments as a barrier to recruiting disabled people. But what they might not realise is that the majority of adjustments cost nothing at all. And it can be as simple as writing something down for someone like me who's hearing impaired. So let's look a bit more at the duty to make adjustments during recruitment. An adjustment <coughs> is a change that removes or significantly reduces a barrier faced by a disabled person. Under the Equality Act 2010, employers have a duty to make reasonable adjustments to the recruitment and selection process. You must make adjustments where you know or could reasonably be expected to know that an applicant is placed at a substantial disadvantage as a result of disability. Reasonably expected to know means considering what barriers can be removed in advance and being alert to the signs that someone is experiencing a barrier. And we'll discuss the barriers in a few more minutes. The 
at the recruitment stage, we need to make you need to make adjustments and remove barriers at the recruitment stage. You don't need to worry yet about adjustments during the actual job because they haven't been successful yet. You're still in the recruitment process. So you need to focus on, at this stage, what adjustments you could make during recruitment. You still need to be mindful, however, not to provide adjustments during recruitment that you couldn't provide if they were offered the role. So for example, I'm deaf. If I was applying for a call centre job and I asked you, can I do the whole recruitment process by email, by text message, and by instant messenger, and you said, okay, what's going to happen when I'm actually in that job? So it's not realistic to make adjustments during the recruitment process that you can't make during the job. So while you don't need to worry too much about adjustments during the job, at this stage, you still need to be mindful not to offer anything that you couldn't do during the actual employment. You don't want to set them up to fail. You should focus on assessing skills. Don't adjust the way the assessment, because again, that could set them up to fail. You need to conduct a fair assessment. So now that we know about our duties to make adjustments during recruitment, but before we make adjustments, we need to understand what the barriers are. Again, going back to my own example, I'm deaf, but I don't use sign language. If I came for an interview and you offered me a sign language interpreter, that is you making the mistake of going straight to the adjustments and making assumptions before you actually understand what the barriers are. So let's have a think about what the barriers are and potential adjustments. So at Learner Cheshire, we subscribe to the social model of disability. The social model believes that we are disabled, not by our impairments, but by the barriers that exist in society. So the impairment is not the barrier, it's society that disables us. And a common example to illustrate the social model is a flight of stairs. If someone can't get into a building, is the problem the wheelchair? Or is it the fact that there's no ramp? Under the social model, we would say it's because there's no ramp. So the social model encourages you to shift your thinking away from seeing the impairment as the barrier to understanding what it is in society that disables us. We need to move away from seeing the disability as a problem to understanding what we can do to make equality happen. Now, some examples in relation to recruitment of what barriers can be and what adjustments can be. In our environment, barriers can be physical, like no ramps, or the barrier can be sensory, like lights that are too bright. If they arrive late for an interview, it might not be because they're unreliable. It might be because they were suckling the building several times trying to find accessible parking, but there was no accessible parking available. Adjustments could be an alternative location or doing the interview or assessment remotely. Perhaps providing information in advance about how they can travel there, what buses, what trains are available locally, whether you have any parking. These are all things that can help people to highlight any barriers to you and request any adjustments for the interview or the assessment. Technology can also present a barrier. If someone is visually or hearing impaired, 
Deine Barrier could be using a laptop or using a telephone. One thing that I don't like when I look at online application forms is the box that asks for a phone number has a star next to it. That means you can't skip it. As soon as I see that, I'm going to not apply for that company because I'm deaf. But if I had an option to use email or phone, then that makes the process more inclusive for me. Contacting someone by phone for a phone interview could also be a barrier. But at the same time, somebody might have um, pain in their hand that makes typing difficult. So alternative formats for application forms and so on can really help as well. Ensuring that our websites are um, screen reader compatible. But also simple things that don't have to cost money, like alternative fonts. That could just be a larger font or a different type of font or a different colour of font. These are things that don't have to cost anything to do. Communication. Some people might require a sign language interpreter. Some people might be more, be more comfortable um, with an online interview because they might feel uncomfortable in um, company and in crowded settings. Some people might prefer to do the interview face to face. Some people might prefer different formats. There's lots of different ways in which we can communicate. And again, not every um, not every adjustment has to cost anything. We can make communication more accessible by providing information in different ways provide as much information as possible in advance so that individuals know what to expect and they're able to identify any barriers in advance so that there's no surprises on the day. Ideally, we should try to anticipate barriers and remove them in advance, but sometimes that isn't always possible. So how can we spot the sign that someone's experiencing a barrier? Some signs could be obvious, such as they've got a sign language interpreter, Maybe they use a wheelchair, maybe they're limping, maybe they have a bandage, or maybe they have hearing aids. These are all things that can be quite obvious to spot. But some signs can be less obvious. Appearance. If someone is doing a video interview, but you can't see them on screen, maybe they have anxiety about being on screen. If someone is late for an interview, maybe, as I said, they couldn't find accessible parking nearby. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are unreliable. If someone has speech that isn't very clear, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're drunk. Maybe they've got an impairment that affects their speech. I had many years of speech therapy to learn how to talk, so it does affect my speech sometimes. So they might have an impairment that affects their speech. Maybe they have a stutter. Maybe they're on medication that affects their speech and makes their speech very slurred. So there could be lots of signs that people are experiencing a barrier. You could have someone who doesn't make eye contact. You could have someone who is distressed. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are disabled. And that is why I've said barrier rather than disability, because it doesn't necessarily mean it's an impairment that's causing the barrier. But you can still spot them signs that there's a barrier there. And that gives you some examples, hope. Um, hopefully. Maybe they are given the wrong answers in an interview or an application form because the question is worded in a way that, that, that isn't very clear to them. So for example, if you ask someone, if you were a biscuit, what biscuit would you be? 
that could cause confusion. If you asked, tell me about yourself, it might not be clear that what you really want is their career history. So be aware as well that not every barrier, as I said, is disability related. Maybe they've had a bereavement or a breakup, or maybe they've just stubbed their toe. But the key thing is you're still spotting the signs, there's still signs there that there is a barrier. And that can then help you to have that open conversation. Is there anything I can do to help you? Would you like to take a break? Would you like to reschedule the interview? These are all things that are perfectly fine to say. Don't jump to conclusions about someone's behaviour. There might be a reason for it. But at the same time, don't be afraid to ask them if you can make any changes. Earlier in the presentation, I explained that figure of 22% is only those who have shared that they have a disability or a long-term condition. You might have applicants who don't share that they have a disability. How they identify and whether they share as a personal choice. People resist labels. They might be afraid of stigma. They might have had a bad experience in a previous employment. They might not um, feel that, that they experience any barriers. They are people who have hearing aids and they lip read and that is fine and they don't want anything more than that. Maybe they don't need or want any adjustments. Everybody is different. They might identify as being dyslexic or deaf but not disabled. So if you have an application form and you're only asking, are you disabled? Yes, no, prefer not to say. They might tick no. But if you had a list of impairments, they might select one from that list. So how they answer the question depends not just on how it's asked, but how they identify. I do in my work get a lot of organisations saying to me, um, they don't tell us how we're supposed to do anything if they don't tell us. But reflect on how you're asking that question. It could be, if it's a very black or white, are you disabled, yes or no, then that might, might actually be the problem. It could be down to how they identify and how the question is asked. Your data monitoring might be improved by revisiting how the question is asked. The language we use can also impact whether they share. The word disclose is often used when talking about disclosing an offence, but being disabled is not an offence. The word disclose could imply that this disability is a big deal, a secret or a bad thing. So we at Leonard Cheshire, we prefer, we prefer to say share instead of disclose because it's more positive. To encourage people to share what their barriers are and what adjustments could remove those barriers, we need organisations to explain why they want the information and be clear on how they'll use that information. Taking actions to include people and talking about what you're doing can give people a reason to share information. Demonstrating that you have disability inclusive cultures can really make a difference. You can create an inclusive culture by arranging disability awareness training, and that's something that my organisation does. You can develop clear policies on equality and diversity and guidance on making adjustments. And that is something that managers and hiring managers and recruitment teams can look at if they feel unsure. That guidance can help them. That training can prepare them as well. Being part of the government disability conference scheme 
is a free scheme to join and that can help you to attract disabled talent. It can also encourage people to share the disability or long-term condition because they can see that you are committed to disability inclusion. So let's move on to top tips to achieve disability inclusion. So you should ensure that all venues, websites and communications are accessible. So going back to what I said, how can they get there? Give them information on how they can travel there. Is there accessible parking? Could you do the interview or the assessment or even the job from a different location? If they are expected to work on the fifth floor, could you move them to the ground floor? Could you move them to another, another venue or could they do the, the interview um, remotely? Are the websites accessible? Could the website be putting people off? If all your images are non-disabled white men, could that put off people who are disabled if they don't see people like them? Communications. We say at the Cheshire that you should to consider adjustments at every stage of the recruitment process, not just the interview. So at the, if you're sending out an email, how accessible is that email? Is the font really tiny? Are you mentioning that you can make adjustments in that email? Are you providing links to any relevant policies? So every stage is important. If people are applying but pulling out before the interview stage, then clearly there's a barrier before that interview stage. What could it be? Could it be that email format? Could it be the website accessibility? Could it be the information you're providing is not very clear? Are you not telling them what to prepare, how to get there? So there's a lot of different things that could happen before the interview stage and therefore it's important to consider accessibility and inclusive, inclusive design before that stage. As I said, give them information at every stage of the recruitment process. Make sure that they are fully prepared, they know what to expect, and the more information that you provide, the better able they will be to identify barriers and highlight them to you. Make sure that everybody knows the importance of making those adjustments and know that how an applicant can request them. Now, before I move on to the questions, I want to explain what my team can do to help you. So I'm sure you've got lots of questions and lots of anxiety around inclusive recruitment and how we can help. What Lena Cheshire do is we can provide further training for recruitment teams where we look in more detail at how to make every stage barrier free. We can provide training for managers and that will look at how to have conversations with disabled employees, how to make adjustments, inclusive language and how people identify. Our training for recruitment teams looks at every stage of the recruitment process, how you can make application forms accessible, how you can make assessment accessible, how you can improve job descriptions, how to attract disabled talent, and how to interview inclusively. We also offer training for customer service teams on how to be inclusive for customer service and um, for customers. And we can provide training for the wider organisation. We can do recruitment audits where we look at your um, policies and processes and give you tips and advice on how to improve them. We can create policies for you. We can create toolkits. We can create inclusive language doc, um, glossaries. We can do research on your behalf. There's a lot that we can do to help you. And finally, 
we can validate organisations for level three of the government disability confidence scheme. So you can come to us and we can help validate you to reach that level three of the scheme. And that is me, short and sweet. Um, for further information, you can contact me at that email address. You can also find me on Twitter and LinkedIn. So please do reach out to me if you have any further questions or if there's anything else that you wanted to know. So thank you. I'm going to be sharing and just see if there's any questions. Do we need to go over any of the questions that were asked um, before the webinar, Robin, the ones that were sent in? Yeah, we can do. Um, let me just have a look at those. Yeah, cool. Because Kirstine, you've seen those already, haven't you? Yes, I've seen, I've seen them, yes. Yeah, cool. Do you want to go through any of those? Yep, yeah, sure. I do you want to be any out, Robin, or do you want me to read them out? Uh, it's, it's up to you, Kirstine, if you've got them to hand. I've got them to hand, yes. There was, um, there was a question on... Although we offer reasonable adjustments for the interview process from the outset, we still see a lot of applicants with a disability withdrawn from interviews. Is there anything else we can do to remove any barriers? So I, I kind of touched on that during my presentation, but I would say there's probably about four things um, to try and remember. So as I said, the first thing to be aware of is that adjustments might be needed at every stage, not just the interview. And that might be why they're withdrawn. So if you if you mention at every stage that you make adjustments or changes in every document, every website that the individual sees, whether that's the job description, job advert, application form, vacancy website and so on, make sure that you are mentioning adjustments. Another thing to think about is feedback works both ways. So in addition to providing feedback, you can also request it. And that's a good way to identify what barriers there might be in the recruitment process. To identify what you might have done wrong, what you can maybe improve. You can also think about further tailored training for recruitment teams. And as I said, that's something that my team can provide. If you're part of the, the disability conference team, shout about it. Mention it in every document that you have, every document that they see. And that can provide reassurance to applicants and also any existing staff. If you're not part of the scheme, join it because it's free and it's really good for providing advice and resources. I'll move on to the next question that I had. Um, somebody has said, um, do you have any tips on influencing managers to recruit more disabled people, more people with a disability? Are there any good websites that we can direct hiring managers to? Okay, so first of all, come to us. <laughs> My team at Lena Cheshire, we can provide um, tailored training for managers and also for recruitment teams so that's something that we can help with. We can create bespoke training to meet your needs and we do work with an awful lot of managers um, and recruitment teams and we've had lots of good feedback and a lot of organisations come back to us year after year. We also have um, we also have some schemes to help disabled people into employment so internships for disabled graduates and a lot of organizations have fed back that that is a good way for them to learn how to be more inclusive. In terms of websites, um, I've already mentioned the Disability Conference Scheme. The Viable 500 website is also useful. You could look at the Evenbrake website because that's a recruitment website for disabled people. There's also websites like the CIPD and ACAS 
which have useful guidance and information. I actually saw a post by ACAS on LinkedIn that mentioned how a manager can be supportive of disabled staff. So these are different types of websites that you can have a look at for more guidance and support. Yeah, Survivor 500 is it's basically 500 CEOs around the world who are committed to disability inclusion. Um, Survivor 500 started in, I think it was 2019, and two years later they had achieved 500, so they've actually exceeded it. Um, but these two schemes, Survivor 500 and Disability Conference, it gives you links to other organisations, good connections. We are listed on the Bible directory as um, a go-to place if people have any um, information or, or guidance that they need. So please check it out. Someone has asked, what language should be used in adverts to encourage applicants with accessibility issues, diverse backgrounds and neurodivergent? So we ask people to use language that is aligned to the social model of disability and avoids making the disabled person seem like the problem. So avoid any language that portrays them as weak or frail or inspirational. So don't say things like suffers from or confined to or brave. Avoid talking about overcoming disabilities because they're still disabled, it's not going away. Remember the real barrier is not the disability, it's the environment, it's negative attitudes, it's ways of working that apply to everybody but actually put a disabled person at a disadvantage. So use language that is basically reflecting what the real barrier is. And if you're not quite sure, you can look up the social model of disability online. You can also get in touch with me and we can um, create an inclusive guide for you on language around disability. We have worked with some organisations like OMI, who are the electric vehicle um, company, to create an inclusive guidance, an inclusive language guide for their employees when working with customers. So that's something that we can definitely give further advice on. Just to circle back to that one, Kirsten, if it's mm -hmm. okay. Um, what language could we use in specifically a job advert? So I know that there is. Um, like gendered language in the sense that some words are coded more masculine, some words are coded more feminine. Is there any particular language that we can use in a job advert to help um, disabled people apply? So I remember from the Diversity Champions podcast you had with Nikki that one of the things is to do with the ability to get to places. Um, so rather than holding a driver's license, are they able to travel? So are there any more things like that that we could be using in our job adverts? I think, there's, I think there's lots of things to consider in job adverts. Um, there's, I mean, there's obvious things to avoid, like don't ask for a driving licence if they can get there by public transport. Um, don't say things like need to be fit, strong and healthy, need to be young and enthusiastic, full of energy. These are all kind of things that can impl imply that you need to be healthy and non-disabled. So these are things, obvious things to try and avoid. Um, but also try avoid saying things like, we are, we treat everybody equally because actually sometimes you have to treat people differently to get equality. Treating me equally would, would be asking me to use a phone, which I can't do. Um, so be very mindful of the language that you use. Um, as long as the language is, you know, positive and encouraging, if you, if you have in your job adverts and job description a mention of disability conflict scheme, for example, that can attract disabled talent. 
if you are mentioning that you can make adjustments at every stage, so in your advert, if you say something like, if you require this in a different format, please contact. But if that contact is just an email address, that could be disadvantage someone who struggles with typing. If it's just a phone number, it could, it could disadvantage someone who struggles with the phone. So we recommend providing three different types of contact, post, email and phone number, so that people can actually still get in touch with you. And just a simple, um, if you require that in a different format, please contact. And have that sentence, uh, uh, every document, everything they see, job I bet, right through to um, invitation to interview. And just trying to be positive and be mindful of any accidental things like need a driving license when they could use a chain. So I, I can't give you, I, I could give you a whole list of things to avoid, but that would take the whole, the whole session. Mm -hmm. But just try and be positive is the key thing. And I think there was another question that someone asked. Um, wait, wait, wait. Please can we have a refresher on the benefits of attracting and recruiting a diverse workforce to share with hiring managers? Well, diversity is good for business. As I said, there's a large pool of disabled talent that isn't being reached. If we don't value diversity, we miss out on great talent. But we could also lose talent already working for, for, for us because they might not want to work somewhere that's not inclusive. Potential customers could go elsewhere. And remember, disabled people spend money too. We all work in different ways, whether we're disabled or not. It's also likely that managers may already have a disabled person working for them, whether it's visible or non-visible. Disability is very broad. Many organisations don't consider disabled people at all. But just because you can't hire a blind taxi driver doesn't mean you can't hire a dyslexic taxi driver. The focus should be on good team working and it's the outcomes that matter. Again, if managers require additional training, we can provide that to get in touch. And the next question was very similar. What, what are the benefits of the, uh, the best workforce? Um, when I am doing the training for managers, I ask them to think about four things. What are the risks of getting it wrong? What is the impact of getting it wrong? What are the benefits of getting it right? And what do we mean when we talk about inclusion? So when we talk about inclusion, as I said, we all work in different ways. Organisations sometimes say we treat everybody the same, but we all work in different ways, whether we're disabled or not. Sometimes you have to treat people differently to get equality. If we value diversity, whether it's disability or another protected characteristic, we're benefiting from a wide range of ideas and perspectives. We can retain existing disabled staff if they feel welcome and valued. We can attract more disabled talent. We can also attract disabled customers. If we get it wrong, there's financial risks, reputational risks, legal risks. We could lose staff. We could lose out on great talent. And the business might not be successful. And these are just some of the points I cover when I deliver training for managers. So if you want to know more, as I said, get in touch. Well, well thank you so much, Christine. That was great. That was really interesting. Some really good takeaways and advice there and lots of tips. Um, so again, um, like we always do, we compile everything into a white paper and we'll share that with everyone um, and we'll fill it out with extra information that Christine will share with us that she's not been able to go through. Um, so yeah, thank you so much, Christine. And uh, next we will hand over to Anna. 
Good, good, good. So, yes, welcome everybody. It's nice to see um, lots of familiar names popping up on the participants list. Um, so, Kirstine mentioned the managers working with people who they don't necessarily know that they're working with somebody with a disability, potentially, or acquired um, conditions that, that people acquire during their employment. Long COVID is a, a classic example of that and also a classic example of what she talked about uh, as regards a potentially invisible um, condition. Um, obviously, you're all familiar with um, what we've been through with the pandemic, but the definition um, that's being used in respect of long COVID is where sim symptoms persist beyond a four-week period. Now, not everybody who has COVID um, is going to recover as quickly as somebody else. Um, I myself have just had Omicron. I think it's taken me about six weeks to recover. Obviously, I'm not in the long COVID category because I have now recovered. Um, finally, got my brain back functioning normally. Um, but the, the issue is that some people are not recovering as they would be expected to. And there doesn't seem to be a link between how serious the COVID was when you had it and long-term symptoms. So it's not necessarily, you know, the people that were hospitalised who've got long COVID. There are people who, who were even asymptomatic um, at the time when they first tested um, positive who have then gone on to um, experience problems that have lasted. And the ONS are estimating that one in five people are still experiencing sy symptoms five weeks in. And then when we get to 12 weeks, it's one in 10. So obviously extrapolated across the whole population, that leads to um, big numbers. Now, for today's purposes, we're only interested in those people who are experiencing symptoms that are going to give them um, issues um, as regards work. The ONS is estimating that currently we've got 1.8 million people who would fall into that category outside of care homes. But of course, that's probably an underestimate because there are lots of people who will be putting their um, condition down to other things. So maybe they're going through the menopause and they're writing their symptoms off as that. Maybe they've um, suffered with their mental health and they're putting some of their symptoms down to that. Um, so the numbers are probably higher than those statistics um, would suggest. But it is now becoming a major cause of absence for employers alongside stress. So obviously, I'm old enough to remember the days when musculoskeletal issues were the top reason for absence in the workplace. That's being um, dwarfed now by um, stress and long COVID. It looks like it's going to become a big issue for 
um, for employers. Now, obviously, one of the barriers that Kirstine talked about earlier um, around um, these things is always whether we can get people to share with us what's going on. Um, and I do like Kirstine's language of sharing and not disclosure. Obviously, with a lawyer hat on, I have to restrain myself from using the word disclosure because obviously that's a bit more loyally. Um, sharing with the employer could be it could be an issue. So it seems to be affecting more women than men. We don't really know why that is. Um, greater problems in certain professions because of course some people particularly with Delta right at the beginning of the pandemic were you know, unvaccinated, having to work in professions like healthcare, education, the care sector, where they were more at risk, therefore, of being exposed. So naturally, you're going to see spikes in those sectors. Um, I listened to a Radio 4 programme first thing this morning, where they were talking about the million people who've left the workforce that they wouldn't expect to have left the workforce during the pandemic. Um, some of that will be down to long COVID. Some of it will be um, people just deciding to retire early, um, carers, responsibilities, all sorts of reasons behind it. But there has been this spike. And of course, that's really important for the economy because if we've lost those people and unemployment is already quite low, um, there's all sorts of challenges for the economy. And as Kirstine said, employers are experiencing challenges around recruitment anyway. Absolutely, it just makes sense to um, look after our employees who have got problems and not lose them from the workforce. Um, so 46% of employers when surveyed have said that they are experiencing issues. Um, quite frankly, we can't afford to, you know, be asleep at the wheel on this issue, I think. In terms of the common symptoms that people report, one of the challenges about this is that the, the symptoms that people are reporting will be very varied. But that's not uncommon with a disability. Um, Kirstine's already told us that um, with her hearing challenges, she wouldn't use um, certain things that other people might assume that somebody with hearing problems might. So, again, we can't make assumptions. We need to be speaking to the person about how long COVID is affecting them in particular. So the most common um, problem that is reported is fatigue. So I was talking to somebody who works in Welsh Government in the health side of things on the weekend, and he was saying that they're very much looking at it in the same light as something like chronic fatigue syndrome, um, ME, um, with fatigue being the primary issue, but that's not necessarily the only problem that people might be having. Breathlessness, um, given that everybody's had a condition that has affected the lungs, not surprising that that's a major um, symptom that's being listed. Um, 
when I had Omicron, brain fog was my biggest problem. I was doing redundancy calculations one day and I couldn't work out that um, 643 was a bigger number than 571. Luckily, it was for a client who's known me for a long time who said, Anna, go, go to bed, you're, you're clearly not well. Um, but you can see on that list that there is a, a, a lot of things on there. I certainly know people who are suffering with headaches and the the kinds of headaches that they're experiencing are more akin to the sort of cluster headaches you might have experienced with staff before. Um, I've certainly um, heard of people where um, all of those different things that are being mentioned um, there are being experienced. And you can see that some of the things on that list, as I said earlier, might be the things that people puts down to something else, um, perhaps. So we're very much at a stage where medically, this condition is only just starting to be learnt about. Um, I certainly found that when I was, when I had it, um, it triggered, I'd broken my shoulder a year ago, those of you who remember me in a sling, um, it triggered sort of inflammation in the body had triggered more pain at the site of that injury. So there's obviously something going on with the inflammatory response in the body. Uh, and they're only just starting to look at that as a medical issue. So we're, we're very early days um, in, in that regard. And one of the big problems with some of these things is the fact that it fluctuates. And you may already have experience of dealing with um, employees with disabilities where they're not feeling the same on a day-to-day -day basis. It's not a linear recovery. Um, so whereas we might have a return to work plan perhaps with um, an individual normally where they're coming back, um, where it's very staged and we know that we're building up in a particular way, you might have to be more flexible around this condition because of the fluctuation, fluctuating nature of it. Now, is it a disability? The Commission for Equality and Human Rights got themselves into hot water a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think it's probably an example of the newspapers perhaps not being um, being a bit too black and white uh, about the answer that they got. So essentially, the commission is saying we can't say it's a disability in the way that we have got in the legislation. You know, if you're diagnosed with cancer, that's deemed to be a disability, and straight away we know we know we're in disability territory. Same with MS and a couple of other conditions. We're back to relying on the definition that you'll all be familiar with from section six of the Equality Act, which talks about whether or not somebody's impairment is having a long-term effect on their ability to undertake normal day-to-day -day activities. And when surveys have been done, you can see on this slide the numbers that are reporting that, it, yes, the condition is um, adversely affecting my ability to undertake normal day-to-day -day activities. So we've got some people saying some, 
a smaller proportion, just under 2%, saying a lot. Now that, um, you know, that's obviously based on one particular survey. So we're in that territory that we're all familiar with, where ultimately we don't know if it is a disability for the purposes of the law until we get in front of a judge and we get a judge saying, yes, it is which obviously is, is somewhere we don't want to be and is at the end of a very long process. We're in that territory where we have to say, well, OK, let's assume it is, because that's the safest thing to do, and act accordingly, and therefore we won't get ourselves into the trouble that we might otherwise if we didn't take this as a serious issue. So... Um, we have to treat people on a case-by-case -case basis. We have to understand how somebody's particular health is and how their particular impairment is affecting them um, and not make assumptions, um, but potentially it could be a disability and we need to um, be acting accordingly. So what are the sort of guardrails that we've got around us to try and make sure that we are getting it right? Um, first of all, when somebody is is off work, um, I see this all the time when I'm acting for individuals. Obviously, I don't do a huge amount of that, but I do a little bit. There's enough to know that quite often that is the point where we get things wrong and the relationship starts to deteriorate immediately. So um, employees quite often feel ignored and abandoned. And, um, you know, I've worked at this organisation for X years and they haven't even been in touch with me will be a common refrain that I hear from people. Um, obviously, the flip side of that can be a feeling of a manager being uh, pressurising around when you're coming back to work, you know, is it going to be this week? Um, and, and that kind of pressure to return too soon. So um, training for line managers around how to handle absence, always important, going to be important here, um, particularly around, you know, employees feeling that there is empathy there, and not feeling that they are being nagged. Um, we've got to be realistic as employers about the fact that we are going to have absences from work. Um, employees need different periods of time off for different things um, during their careers. And, you know, we have to plan our workforce around that and if that means employing more people so that we've got some flex and cover in the system then that's on us as the employer it's not the employee's fault if we haven't done it so um you know we need to be factoring absence in really um the pandemic has kind of taught us is it not that our sick pay structures are probably not fit for purpose across the whole uk um obviously you know statutory sick pay being the primary focus of that point um you know do we as a society enable um 
people to still be able to afford to to live and things. Um, obviously, the cost of living crisis is going to become much more of an issue. So I know lots of employers are looking at what do we do around sick pay? Is it good enough? Um, do we need to make changes? So you know that factor will feed in here. Um, when it comes to preparing for the return to work, often I see return to work plans that are six weeks. It doesn't matter what your medical condition is, it's six weeks. Um, and we start with, you know, working half a day and we end up working full time at the end of it um, with a quite a linear um, graduation to that point. Um, and we've all become a little bit addicted to that sort of format and actually we need to be more flexible um, if somebody's coming back where they have perhaps been off for, for a while um, they may be wanting to return to normality as soon as possible as well but apprehensive about how they're going to juggle everything and if we factor in the up and down nature of the symptoms that they might be having um, some kind of flexibility within that plan might be necessary so that's managers understanding that we might need to revise that plan and be prepared to go back a stage and extend it for longer etc etc so we just need to give more thought i think around around those plans um we're often quite good at supporting people in the immediate return so we're quite good at saying do we need to have mentorship um do we need to make sure the manager is having regular meetings with that person to check check in with them how it's going um have those adjustment conversations that we've just been talking about what we're not so good at and i do see this quite often in employment tribunal cases that land on my desk where at the beginning we've made lots of changes and adjustments but over time we've all forgotten about what we did at the beginning and it's just become perhaps normal but we forget to then go back and say you know six months has gone past how how is this developing and this goes for any medical condition um things do change people's needs change but we forget to then say well what else do we need to do at this point so quite often when I'm in a case about reasonable adjustments there will have been reasonable adjustments that were made at the beginning but then they're not made later in the in the employment relationship um you know maybe performance management happened or sickness absence management has happened and adjustments haven't been made as part of that process so we need to we need to bear it in mind a bit like Kirstine saying at every stage of the recruitment process let's talk about reasonable adjustments I'm saying at every stage of the employment life cycle let's talk about reasonable um, adjustments which we'll um, we'll we'll come on to um, One of the biggest things, and I think this ties in with what Kirstine was saying about the social model of disability, is the mindset of the manager. Too often, the mindset of the manager is, how can I get rid of this person? 
not, how can we make this work? Not, what support do you need from me as your manager to help you? Um, and indeed, I think Samsung, quite why they were doing it, I don't know, but Samsung did a survey last week that was reported in people management where 45% uh, responded saying they would be uncomfortable to talk about disability. And I think that's one of the problems because we don't feel confident to have the conversations. People shy away from it. And, and that's where the problem starts. Um, so training for managers, I think, is really important um, for all medical conditions, but including long COVID, so that the manager is able to, to ask simple questions. You know, tell me about how it's affecting you. What can we do to help? And the employee is going to be the best guide as to what they think would help them. Obviously, we can get medical advice as well, but um, it is important to ask the individual. So there's a mindset change there. And it does go two ways. I don't think it's just an employer mindset change. I think employees sometimes, the mindset can be, you're my employer, you know, you have to sort this out for me. Whereas I like to see conversations, um, if you look at um, sort of work-related action plans, if you use the mind format for their wrap discussion for those mental health issues or something similar when you're talking to your staff in general about health stuff, it's a two-way street. And one of the questions on that form is around these are the things that the employer is going to be doing. What am I going to be doing as an employee? And that might be simple things. That might be making sure I get a good night's sleep. That might be making sure I get fresh air and exercise and I eat properly. Um, so, you know, it, it is a, it's a two-way thing. Um, and I like to see agreements between the employee and the employer that, that do have that balance um, in them. Um, obviously, we're at a bit of an inflection point at the moment in terms of the workplace anyway. Um, we're all talking about hybrid working, flexibility, remote working, presenteeism and the problem that's coming sometimes from that. Um, I had at least two conversations in the three days that we had last week with people who were on their holiday and yet having a meeting with their lawyer. So, you know, people not taking the, the breaks that they should be. And what are we what are we going to do about those things? And somebody raised in the questions a really good point about government policy and obviously uh, reading what Jacob Rees-Mogg had been writing notes to people um, on their desks. Um, some of the comments that Boris Johnson has made about um, getting people back to work. We've had Elon Musk, haven't we, last week? 
basically saying, if you're not coming back to the office, I'm going to fire you. Um, I think here in the UK, James Dyson has been famous for his insistence on everybody getting back to work versus those of us in the HR community who are much more aware, perhaps, of inclusivity and the advantages of hybrid working, more working from home. We've all learned, haven't we, through the pandemic that um, we are able to work in that way and therefore potentially employ more people with disabilities. So I think this is, we are at that, you know, inflection point where we've got um, landlords who obviously want us all back in city centres uh, because of their businesses or those involved in transport and things like that versus what is right for organisations and what's right for uh, for people. Um, and I think it, there is an opportunity for HR to be driving um, the positive, inclusive um, aspects of the changing in the employment model that is going on at the moment. So reasonable adjustments, you're familiar with the idea and you know, and Christine touched on this, as soon as you know that there is a, a, a barrier, um, then that's when you're expected to look at what can we do to remove that barrier to level the playing field. And, you know, as Lady Justice Hale said many years ago now, um, in one of the cases, it is about um, more favourable treatment of those with a disability. They may be benefiting from something that we don't allow other people to do or um, something that other people might view as an advantage in some way. But it's all about this idea of removing the disadvantage that they're at. Now, key to the to making reasonable adjustments is getting medical advice because um, we, you know, we're not expected to be a, an expert on all medical conditions. Um, so the doctors will be able to give us ideas as to things that they think medically would be um, helpful. Um, but the best guide on this is always going to be the individual. And Kirstine talked about having those quality conversations. Um, some people are going to require adjustments to either their job role or the working environment. Um, so it is about us understanding what the things that they're struggling with are and what we might be able to do to help. Um, in terms of the CIPD materials that are available on their website uh, to do with long COVID, and I put a link at the end so you can um, tap into those. Um, they talk about obviously working from home potentially or hybrid working, flexibility over work times. So if somebody is struggling um, that maybe they don't have to start and finish at a set time, they might be able to be more flexible about it. Greater flexibility over last minute absences. Um, so that might be adjusting your um, normal trigger points for action under things like your sickness absence management procedures. It might be changing times so that people aren't having to commute. If somebody is suffering from fatigue, commuting might be something that is contributing to, um, to that issue. 
Um, it might be looking at the job tasks and saying, well, what can we do to make the job tasks less cognitively demanding um, or less physically demanding? It might be something as simple as allowing somebody to have their break in a restroom um, and, and, and just get that uh, headspace away from, from the job. Um, it might be changing the pattern of their working day, so more breaks throughout the day. We talked about altered tasks. It might be having a clear somebody to check in with, even just as support, time off for medical appointments, um, as well as equipment adjustments that we're all used to, hopefully used to um, making to make people's life um, easier. Now, Kirstine mentioned that those things don't necessarily have to be expensive. Um, I've just had an example of an employee with adult diagnosis of ADHD, you know, been a successful salesperson for many years, um, where the employer's attitude was very disappointing I think about that issue um you know it is a question of asking the employee what things would help to enable you to do your job other things that we might have in our kit bag I mentioned wellness action plans um I do like them as I said because of the ability to look at things from both sides um, the CIPD have got something called what they call the IGLU checklist and IGLU stands for individual, group, line manager, outside and organisation levels. So that's a series of questions where you can use it as a checklist to say, you know, do I, for example, when it comes to the team, um, you know, does the team understand what long COVID is um, and how it might impact on somebody? Um, so that might be a useful checklist to use, use if you do have um, somebody experiencing long COVID. Um, I always recommend mapping out absences. This can be as simple as getting a diary, getting the sort of one year to a page um, calendar and colouring in the days when somebody's been absent from work um, or, or whatever other format um, that you use to record the information because sometimes it's only when you do that that it becomes apparent how frequent absences have been or the totality of the impact that it's potentially having on the organisation and of course if we're getting to the stage where um, you know, it is starting to have a really negative impact on the job, then you're going to need that evidence to start managing that and maybe talking to the person about adjustments that might need to be made to the role. Maybe they need to go part time. Uh, maybe they need to step down into a, a less demanding role um, in order for it to work from both parties' perspectives. And it can be very um, illustrative to an individual who 
will only remember that they were off last Monday. They won't remember the time before and the time before that and how it's built up over a long period of time. So it can be really useful. And I think useful for judges as well, if we are challenged later on to have that paperwork as part of your paper trail because it, it immediately gives somebody a feel for oh crikey yeah this person has been off for that amount of time and I quite often will work it into a percentage of working time um, as well so that we can say look this is the pattern or this is the the impact um, and it really brings it to life um, for people. Um, Medical advice, it's, it always astounds me the number of cases that people come to me for advice about a health issue. And when I ask the question, have we got any medical advice? Um, the answer is no. And so, of course, my first port of call is usually to say, well, why don't we get some? Um, GPs, I think they're so flat out, the quality of the support that can be expected from GPs is just not there anymore. Um, so it does need to be occupational health. Obviously, there is a cost for employers of that. Um, those of you who are in RCT, um, I am aware of um, some free services being offered there um, through the local authority so if anybody is in that area and you want that information send me an email and I can um, I can pass that that on um, especially smaller uh, employers um, I mentioned having a conversation a couple of different times and again this is a massive weak spot that I see all the time not just talking about long, long COVID but any health um, condition where people shy away from speaking to people um, and resort instead to using text messages or slack or whatever um, people are using these days and there is just isn't a substitute for sitting down with somebody and having a face-to-face -face, um, being able to make eye contact uh, with those who are comfortable obviously making eye contact um, reading somebody's body language and you know when people are at the sort of forks in the road um, that there may be with this kind of issue being able to talk to them about things and you know let's not get in bad habits of just emailing everybody and forget the importance of, of, of doing that um, so while you're thinking about that did say any questions on it. I don't know where it's gone. I've obviously not saved the picture that said any questions on it. While you're thinking about, um, about your questions, um, I will answer one other question that um, was raised um, prior to the session. And that was around um, whether or not the government um, are likely to uh, put more money into this space. Um, you're probably familiar, or I hope you're familiar, with the Access to Work scheme and the fact that through the Department of Work and Pensions, you know, you are able to get support through that scheme. So I would um, encourage all employers to always go there and see what support you can get 
Um, certainly had lots of examples of, you know, we talked about mobility issues earlier and, you know, um, somebody who perhaps couldn't have a driving licence um, had examples of Department of Work and Pensions even funding taxis for people to be able to to do their job. So um, don't forget um, that, that, that that is there. Um, in terms of answering the question, um, we can all hope, can't we, that the government would put some more money into this space. Um, given our ageing population, given what's going on with the workforce, given um, the fact that managers are going to be managing just naturally more people in the workplace with disabilities, I would have hoped that at some point um, employers might be given greater tax breaks, for example, around things like getting occupational health advice and support. But um, I'm not aware of any plans at the moment that um, would, would fall in that category. Um, one of the other questions that somebody asked um, was around testing people this is going back to our recruitment staff um testing literacy and uh, numeracy skills and concerns about um neurodivergent uh people and dyslexia in particular um i think kirstine explained that when you're testing first of all we want to make sure that the tests that we use are reflective of the job that somebody's actually going to be doing. There's no point testing, you know, just in general, somebody's uh, literacy or numeracy if it doesn't have any relationship with the actual job. So if, you know, using a, uh, you know, a silly example, somebody's, you know, numeracy is going to be entering numbers into a till in a supermarket, um, and the till is going to be doing the work for that person. Um, why don't we just test that? We don't need to be testing, you know, their ability to add up without any support or device to, to help them do it. Um, there was the uh, case a few years ago against the government legal department to do with the tests that they had set as part of the recruitment process. Um, for lawyers and criticism of the court that they hadn't adjusted um, the particular tests that they were using um, to take into account uh, those people who were um, dyslexic. So um, it is something that employers need to think about. But again, coming back to what Kirstine was saying, can we ask the candidate what adjustment they would like as part of the process and why they think it would help level the playing field for them um rather than be sort of black and white and no we can't do that well let's just find out what it is that they want typically it might be just longer to do the test or the ability to you know print something on a different color again not going to be costly to us to do it <coughs> Okay, so any further questions that you've thought about? 
Some of the uh, questions we had from um, the signups were quite interesting. Um, so could we reasonably be reasonably expect candidates to work in an office uh, at home slash blended working um, with government changing its policy? Um, it depends. <laughs> Everything is going to depend on what somebody's um, particular abilities are. Um, I think I think uh, I, I'm actually a trade union rep as well. So in uh, trade unions, I've a campaigning for um, the right to, for, to give people to work from home. Um, so there's a campaign for it. Um, and I'm aware of an increasing number of cases um, where individuals have asked to work from home at a reasonable adjustment. It's been refused and now we've got the pandemic as a actually look to it can be done. So it's a shame that it took a pandemic for us to get flexibility. Um, but again, everybody's different. We're all individuals. Some people prefer to work in an office, some people don't. So these sort of things need to be looked at in a case-by-case -case basis, I think. Yeah. Really, um, so I don't think it's so much what the government is recommendation is recommending. I think it's more along lines of how do we be inclusive. So we need to kind of move away from the government guidance to the Equality Act. During the during the COVID nineteen pandemic, there was a lot of equality doesn't matter anymore because COVID nineteen measures are more important. So we don't care if you're deaf, we're still going to wear our face mask. Um, so you, do, you need to remember that you know government guidance is not always <laughs> um, inclusive. <laughs> so the Equality Act is still there, and if working from home, I work from home full time as an adjustment. So, um, so working from home can be an adjustment. The hybrid working can also be an adjustment, and it's a really a case by case basis. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, Jana. Sorry. No, it's fine. Um, you've touched on what I would say is that um, if I was to stereotype before the pandemic, very blinkered attitude of managers. No, we can't support that. No, we can't support that idea. Of course, the pandemic, as Kirstie's just said, has blown flexibility, working from home, you know, those ideas. It's just blown it out of the water. And the evidence is that productivity was not harmed by that. Yes, there are challenges which generally come down to management style. Um, but the evidence base now for employers to be able to say no it's almost harder, isn't it? It's flipped around. Um, whereas perhaps before the pandemic, we were kind of challenging our women and disabled people and whoever else wanted flexibility to work from home to sort of prove to us that it can work. Now we've almost got to prove why, why it can't work. So why this particular role has to be done in an office and I must admit, I'm really struggling for a lot of jobs <laughs> to, 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 to reach that point. I mean, there are jobs. I was talking to um, somebody where an administrator role, where it was like one administrator for, you know, a, a, a setting where it was very much based on site. Yes, that person had been able to do bits of their job 
from home during the pandemic, but there were lots of the job that had been neglected or other people had had to do instead because it needed, you know, the person needed to be physically there to do those things. So, you know, there are examples where you can justify, well, it, yeah, it does need to be there because there's all of these things, but you have to do it on, based on the particular job and evidence and the attitude of no, we can't do that is, you know, that's not going to be good enough. It's got to be on the evidence. If that makes sense. We got any more, Robin? Um, yes. Um, are there any adjustments in particular that we should be considering with long COVID cases? Well, I kind of talked about um, things you should be considering. It's very difficult without speaking to the individual about how their particular COVID is affecting them. Um, as to as to you know what the adjustments would be um so it does have to be case by case, case, case. and 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 this is this is where i get frustrated because there seems to be a mental block for managers maybe it's just because they're so busy and they've got a million and one other things to do in their jobs where there's a resistance to having these conversations and looking at it on a case by case basis. Um, maybe it's because they feel like it's work, you know, it's extra work. I don't know. So what can we do as HR to make people's life easier and maybe lift that burden from them so that they don't feel that employing a, dis a disabled person um, is a problem? And that they do see all the benefits that Kirstine was talking about earlier. Yeah, I mean, in my, in my presentation, I, I tried to highlight that you can't make adjustments without understanding the barrier. And using myself as an example, I don't use sign language, so if you offer me a sign language interpreter, that would be a big mistake. So it's very easy just to say what adjustments can we make. And I, and I could give you a list of adjustments, that doesn't mean they're actually going to work for that person. So it's not an easy answer. We can't just tell you how to work with one individual person because we're all different. Um, and the focus should be on understanding the barriers and having those conversations with people before you move on to making adjustments. Um, and we, in our training for managers, we do cover how to have these conversations with employees. So if anybody is asking that question, they can come back to me. But the focus should be more on understanding that we are individuals with individual barriers. Um, so, yeah. And another thing I wanted to say, um, touching on the long, long COVID, um, a lot of shops and restaurants were refusing people entry unless they could prove that they, they were exempt. But then when they went to the doctor, the doctor refused to give them those exemption letters. And that goes back to what Anna was saying about how only a court or a tribunal can tell you if someone meets that legal definition. A doctor can't. So try not to ask people for proof before you make adjustments because you could actually get into a lot of trouble by for asking for that proof. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, you know, I see things that the it's all gone wrong we're at a court case um, end of things. You know, I want to be able to say when I'm drafting your defence or I'm putting witness statements together and presenting something to the judge, I want to be able to say, Yes, this person has got, you know, we agree this person has this medical condition. Um, but these are the things that the employer did to help 
and to support and to look after that person because immediately you're then presenting a picture to a judge that is look at this lovely employer look at what they've done to um, help and support this person and if we're then saying but you know the relationship broke down because of this or you know ultimately you know their condition deteriorated to the point where we could no longer employ them or there was some kind of falling out I can set that in context with the but look at all these great things that we did to look after this person these are all the adjustments we made um it's very easy for a claimant to with the benefit of hindsight, look back and say, well, you know, you could have done this or you could have done that, because we can all do that with the benefit of hindsight. But, you know, if they weren't asking for it at the time, if we weren't having, you know, when we were giving them the opportunity, when we had our review and said six weeks in since you came back to work, how is it going? Is there anything else we need to do? And if they've said no at that point, and we've got the paperwork to show it, the fact that two years later they're saying, "Oh well, they could have given me the sun and the moon and the stars," well, that's not gonna it's not gonna sit well with the judge. So, um, you know, it's about us being out. It's not, you know, obviously uh, we don't do these things just because we want to win tribunals. We do these things because it's the right thing to do. But you can just see the difference in how something might be presented where we have made an effort versus those employers who they're like what disability you know they haven't even talked to somebody about it um Jill, this brings me on to the question i was going, going to ask personally so i find that some topics makes people uncomfortable and i feel like disability is one of those topics that people like to shy away from whether that's just because um, it's an uncomfortable topic or they don't know enough about it or um, they don't want to get things wrong so what yeah. how how can we make people comfortable talking about disability um I'll answer first and then Kirstine can can give her answer um I think you're right that survey that I talked about with Samson definitely tells us at least half of people are, are, are uncomfortable um and I think you're right that it is fear of getting it wrong that often um, drives people to shy away from a conversation. Um, I'll give you an example. I had a friend who has mobility issues and, and uses a stick. And she kept going to job interviews and not getting the job. And she was just aware that there were managers who probably had had training saying you shouldn't ask somebody about their disability. Um, so they weren't asking her anything. And she, so we decided that the next job that she went for, she would be really upfront and say, you know, yes, I do walk with a stick, but just to let you know, this, you know, I can still drive a car. I, you know, I can still get around, um, provided that, you know, it's not a million steps and it doesn't affect my ability to attend work and do my job. And as soon as she'd brought it up, then the other people were more comfortable to start talking about it then because she's given them permission to talk about it. So I do encourage people who have got medical conditions to talk to people about it. 
And certainly, you know, I've got MS and many of you know that because I've shared it enough over the years. And I kind of made a policy decision when I was diagnosed that I wanted to challenge the image of all people with MS are blind in a wheelchair and incontinent kind of stereotype. Um, and, you know, talk about working with the condition and, and managing the condition. So I, I do encourage people with disabilities to to start the conversation, to try and cure the fear. I don't know what you think, Kirsty. Um, it's interesting because while you've been talking, um, I've noted that the language you use is different from the language we use. Um, it, we use more, more social model language, so we don't see in a wheelchair, we don't see people with disabilities. But that can be part of the confusion as well, because people from different countries and different generations and different cultures can all have different language that they use. And that can create a whole bunch of confusion as well. Um, so when I'm delivering training, I try and teach people about the language and identity and how it varies and what they should and shouldn't do. But I also say to them, if you do get it wrong, then don't panic, because if you get it wrong, you learn from it. And it's better to get it wrong and learn from it than to avoid a situation altogether. Um, and there are some situations which you shouldn't ask about disability at all. And that is something that we cover when we're doing training for recruitment teams. We do cover what you should and shouldn't ask and the situations you're allowed to ask. Ultimately, if you are asking a question in a different way, that can encourage people to share. Because if you're just asking, are you disabled? Yes, no, prefer not to say. Then people might pick no. But if you have a list of common conditions that people can choose from, they are more likely to pick, oh yes, I'm dyslexic, oh yes, I'm autistic. And that can get the conversation opened up. If you have an inclusive place to work by being part of a disability confidence scheme, that again can encourage people to open up and reassure them. And it can also reassure non-disabled staff um, like managers and recruitment teams um, because there'll be clear policies, there'll be clear guidance and they'll know what to do. So I think these are, these are things that, that can help to make it less awkward, really. Any, any more? more questions, Robin? No, I think I think that's all of our questions and I think that just about brings us to the end of the session. Thank cool. you very much for having me along today. Thank Absolutely. You thank you so much for joining. Yeah, thank you, Christine. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Robin. And thank you, everyone, for joining. It's great to, great to all get together again. Yes, it, it would be nice to see people in person. So do give us some feedback as yeah. to what you'd prefer, both topic-wise and whether you want to carry on doing online or face-to-face. -face. Oh, well, um, thank you, everyone, and uh, we'll see you on the next one. Take care. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. See you. Bye. -bye. Bye.